All right, so lesson 52. This is the book of Romans, grace and peace to you. And uh, we're in uh, about two-thirds of the way. We'll finish up about two-thirds of the way through Romans chapter 8. Um, I can't finish chapter 8 before our break, but it's a good place to break because we'll, uh, we'll be talking about prayer when we come back and then victory. So pretty soon we'll be through chapter 8 and then we get to go chapter 9. Yeah, you guys are right on top of it, man. I just tell you. So, yeah. So, okay, Romans chapter 8, and uh, this is the, the chapter that Paul has, in a sense, revealed the, the secret. It's not that it's been a secret, but the, the solution, let me say it that way, to living out the righteousness that God has placed within, and that through uh, submitting to uh, the power of the Spirit on the inside, we can live to the glory of God. We can never do that by the law. We've said that over and over. Paul has said that over and over. Uh, but people just don't get it. They still try to apply legalistic, law-based standards to living the Christian life instead of drawing from the Spirit within. And that is a matter of just letting the Spirit lead you and letting the Spirit fulfill Himself through you. We'll talk more about that when we get to chapters 12 through uh, 15, when he really speaks more about the living out, practical living out of this righteous life that is on the inside of us. But here in Romans chapter 8, we got down to uh, verse 17. Um, but actually, I was starting in chapter verse 16, so uh, your notes are a little bit wrong there. It should say Romans 8, 16 through 25. I know. Somebody has to make a mistake, and it has to be me, right? So uh, some of them got changed, and some didn't. But okay, so we did 12 through 17 last week, but we didn't really finish verse 17, but I need to start in verse 16 so that we uh, pull the, carry, the, uh, the context of this message through. So Romans 8, verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he has seen, or for what he does see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. All right, so uh, the context of this is basically suffering. And he's talking about the suffering not only of the believer, but the suffering of creation and the suffering of our own life as we live in this fallen world. So there's, interestingly, uh, almost every one of the commentaries titled this subsection, Three Groans and a Glory. So uh, it's like somehow groans and glory. I, I chose not to do that. All right. But there uh, we find within these few verses, three times it mentions the word groaning. And we will look at each one of those in their context as we go down through this. Uh, well, two times here, but another time in verse 26, which we're not going to cover yet, but we will. All right, so we suffer with him. That's where we ended in our session last week. But this fact that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And this is a reality that Paul has here revealed. How much these believers in Rome knew about that before Paul said it, we don't know. But he had talked about that very subject to the Galatians. And there are people in Rome who came from the region of Galatia. And so it's probable that some of them knew these principles and the people already understood somewhat about what it meant that we had been adopted as children of God. And the idea of adoption isn't quite like what we think of as adoption. We talked about that last week. But in, in Roman society, when they adopted someone outside of their family, they would be in a, in a sense, in many times, they'd be in a lesser position. It was like you were secondary children, or like, you know, we would think of sometimes in some of the movies that we watch, you know, the adopted stepchild, you know, it's like, hey, it doesn't really belong, it's, it's you know, Cinderella type things, okay? But um, in upper classes of Roman society, that was not necessarily the case. Many of them did not have children, and so they would adopt someone or their children were not suitable, and they would adopt someone who was suitable. And uh, kind of like, I don't know, just my football thing right now, going into the transfer portal. And so, you know, you're selling yourself to the better team. But, um, but they, were, they were often looking for a child maybe from another family uh, that could have more potential. But once they were adopted they would place them in the same position, oftentimes over their natural-born children. And so they, because they had, you know, selected someone who'd been to Harvard and, you know, then to West Point and then, you know, had, had you know, all kinds of credentials. And it's like, wow, this is, this is the one I want for my son. And so they would do that, even up into the 
the ruling families, they would do this. Well, God's adopted us. Now, we are both natural-born children of God. But then if we're natural-born children, why adoption? Well, adoption also has to do with a placing. That the child was placed in a position of authority, risen to the status of the father, so that he could make the business decisions, he could make all the transactions, he could speak with the same authority, with the same voice. If you heard the voice of the adopted son, you heard the voice of the father. So the Greek word, huiathesia, means to place as a son. To place as a son. You could do that with your own children and place them in that position. Now, usually that was just one of your children that would get that position. Or you could do it with an adopted child. But it was meant that you'd taken one of these children and placed them into the position that what they said was the same as what you said. Maybe you would give them your signet ring. You would give them a seal. They would speak for you. They would have some kind of designation with their name that you were not just a child of this person. You were the spokesman for the family, in a sense, the family business. And so this was a position of authority. It was a position of power. It was a position of status. And so when we think of that in relationship with God, we are his natural-born children, yes, so we are the born children of God, born of the Spirit, born of the Word. So we are born of God, children of God, as Paul uses that phrase. But we're also, we Thesea, placed as sons, in the sense that we have been given a position of, of authority, of status, of power, of rulership. And all of that belongs to us. And the beautiful part of this is, Galatians shares this specifically, that this takes place at the time that you're born again. This isn't something you have to grow into. You don't need to go to the Harvard of Bible College. You don't have to go to West Point of Bible College, uh, seeing that they beat Navy this last week. But um, you don't have to have some kind of accolades after your name. You are a Child of God, you are a huiathesea, placed as authority. That belongs to every born child of God. But they don't know anything. Doesn't change the fact at all. The newest born child of God, we had a young man born again this, this past Sunday at the church service. From the day, minute that he got born again, Gary got to witness to him. You know, as soon as he was born again, he had all the same authority that every one of us have, no matter how long you've been in the ministry, no matter how long you've been saved, no matter how much of the Bible you know or have memorized. He's got the same authority, the same position. He can speak with the same uh, authority with the name. He can declare and decree things that God has given to him. That is the authority that God gives to every true child or true son of God. Isn't that glorious? And so this is not something we have to grow into. So what Paul wants them to understand, where he taught this, how much of this he taught, 
How much of the Roman people knew this, we don't understand, but they did understand Huiathesea. They knew, they knew the principle. And every Roman would have known that principle. Everyone within the Roman Empire would have understood that principle. And so the idea of this is very aware to them. But here Paul is making reference to the fact that this belongs to every child of God. So in the passage that's just before this, we are, we're spoken of both as sons of God and children of God. And you're both. Thank God we're a child of God. Born of Him. We belong to Him. We're His very own. We're His own dear children. But we're also sons of authority. And so we have been given this position of authority. And Paul says, verse 16, the Spirit bears witness to this. The Spirit himself bears witness. Now, this is kind of a, a, a duplicating of words, a compounding of phrases, because to bear witness means the Spirit is saying the same thing. So it's the Spirit says the same thing, and then he says it to our spirit. So the Spirit says what God has said, what God has declared, that you are my son this day. Have I begotten you? What he said to his son, when he raised him to his position, God says the same thing to us. We are his sons. And he declares that to us. But the Spirit witnesses the same thing to us. Now, your translation says Spirit witness with us, but it's not wit bears witness with us. It bears witness to us. The Spirit on the inside of you is saying, you're a son of God. You're a son of God. You belong to him. Amen. The Spirit on the inside is saying that. Now, many believers have maybe never heard that with their ears. They've never had it preached to them or taught to them. They've read the Bible, and maybe they've read some of these verses, but it never really registered. But the Spirit on the inside is saying, no, you're a son of God. And so the Spirit inside bears witness to our spirit that we are both God's children and his sons. Verse 17 continues the thought that bears witness to us that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. That's a powerful statement. We are heirs. And he goes further. Heirs of God and joint heirs or fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you know of, in the Old Testament, they had the principle of the firstborn? The principle of the firstborn, which is what? Firstborn child gets what? Everything, basically. Got more of the children, the firstborn gets two parts, and the other children get one. So if you got two kids, you divide it into thirds, the firstborn gets two thirds, and the others get a third. If you got ten children, the firstborn gets almost everything, and everybody else gets like a tenth. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's not a good deal. Although, you know, a double portion, praise God, I got a double portion. Um, how many know Jesus is the firstborn of God? Amen. Guess what? So are you. So are you. You are just the same as the firstborn of God. We are 
joint heirs, fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. What God has given to him, he gives to us. He doesn't get a double portion and we have to divide up how many billion believers have there been. Man, my portion is getting smaller and smaller. Every time somebody gets born into the kingdom of God, my portion gets smaller. Can we just please stop and go home while I've still got something? No. We all receive the same portion. There is no better portion for some and lesser portion for others. There's not even a better portion for Jesus and a lesser portion for us. It says we're what? Heirs of God. That's enough. Heirs of God. But you know, we've all seen the, 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 the murder mystery programs. Who's getting the most when the father dies? Everybody's after the bigger portion. And, you know, if I kill off my brothers, then I get all of their part. Right? We're all heirs of God. Yeah, that's great and wonderful. But Paul doesn't stop there. The Spirit doesn't stop there. Not only that, you are also joint heirs. Fellow heir is the way the Greek word says it. A fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Not a fellow heir of Jesus Christ, but a fellow heir with him. What he has, say it, you have. What he has, you have. Well, I'm, I'm not God. No, you're not God. That's not the point. The point is authority, position, status. The position is where you will stand on that day. There's not going to be a line of, well, okay, wait a minute. We've got to arrange everybody according to their status when we all get to heaven. You know, some of these people are like way up here, you know, and they're down here. Oh, here comes somebody else. But they got to jump the line and they get moved up ahead of you. No, we're all in the same status. We're joint heirs, fellow heirs with Jesus. And so we have been given this position not to rule over the earth. We don't have that. That's not the position but can we speak in his name if i say it in his name is not the same as him saying it that's what it means if i use his name that's the same as him saying it and so we have been given this position and so not only that and if children now the if there is a first condition, we've talked about that before, the if of first condition meaning as a fact, if as a fact, or if in view of the fact, or if indeed your children, are you a child of God? Yes. Then you're an heir, a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. Then comes this clause. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified. All right, there it goes. Now I don't get my airship if I don't suffer with him. So we hold this as some kind of a, um, a clause that somehow takes away uh, a dependent. But... Let's read it in the, in the green. I told you last week, I, I, in all these verses, because it's so, it's so 
well done. The Passion Translation. And so the green underneath uh, the verse that we're looking at, it, verse 817, down at the bottom of your page. So the green is from the Passion Translation of verse 17. It says, and since we are his true children. All right, Jeff, I could just stop my preaching and we could just read the Passion Translation. Everybody go home. Because pretty much it says just about everything I want to say. But how you know, I'm not going to. Okay, so... Since we are his true children, we qualify to share all his treasures. For indeed, we are heirs of God himself. And since we are joined to Christ, we also inherit all that he is and all that he has. Oh, my. We will experience being co-glorified with him, provided we accept his sufferings as our own. So what does that mean? What is this? I was, I was liking the air thing. I was really liking the joint air thing. I'm really good with all of that. I'm not so happy about the last part of verse 17. Can we just, you know, kind of... Make that out of there. No. Because the suffering with him is in context. And I don't know how else to say that. It just is. It's in context. In context of what? Of living out this life of righteousness. If you live out, right? Our subject here is being led by the Spirit of God, right? So if you allow the Spirit of God to lead you, if you live out the righteous life of Jesus Christ that's on the inside of you, guess what? You are going to suffer. Write this down. I didn't put it in your notes, but write it down. If you have paper to write on, if you had a Bible, you could write it in the margin, but some of you don't bring your Bibles. But anyway, um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12. Now notice, you'll never see this on a plaque that people hang on their wall. <laughs> you'll never see this, you know, blazoned on a t-shirt or probably on a tattoo, you know. Uh, people aren't going to put this up. You know, it's not one of those cute little things that you pass around. All those who live godly in Christ Jesus. Okay, it starts out good. And then it quickly falls off the cliff. Shall suffer persecution. All right, I don't like the second half. So let's just, let's just, we don't have space on the tattoo for everything. So we just say, all who live godly in Christ Jesus. Just dot, 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 and drop it. Why don't you just put the second half on there? Shall suffer persecution. Because the more godly we want to live, and the word godly means live like God is God. Live toward God as if he really is God. Oh, guess what? He really is. Okay, so live that way. Now, I could, you know, I could probably ask us numbers of times during the day or at least during the week 
Are you living like God is really God? Are you living like you're kind of in charge and you're doing what you want to do or that the world's in charge or, okay, I'll just pass over that. And that never happens to anybody in this room, but too many believers don't live like God is God. It's, it's nice words from our mouth, but it's not always followed up with a pattern of life. Living like God really is God. And if you do that, which Romans chapter 8 is what it means to be led by the Spirit, to live out the righteousness of God that's on the inside, to offer yourself, Romans chapter 6, as a slave of righteousness to God, if you're doing that, you will suffer persecution. Because the world doesn't like it. And so that's the context of what he's talking about here. And if you live as a child of God, if you live in this world like the heir of Christ, or the heir of God, fellow heir with Christ, if you live like that, you will find yourself suffering. Not from God. Nothing in here comes from God. It's, it's nothing about God. So now there's a whole parcel, I guess I would almost say probably the majority of Christian preaching that involves God doing things to cause you to suffer. But none of this is about God doing it. It's about the world doing it. Now, God sent his son to the cross to die for us, but God didn't persecute his son. The persecution was coming from the world, especially from religious people. And so that is the same that comes against those. If you suffer like he did, you will be glorified. You will receive the same glory. In other words, you will be rewarded. And so if we're willing to live his life we're going to get rewarded after. It's after. You know, when serving the military, you can go down to the, uh, the base store and purchase the medals that you deserve. And at the base store, they're going to ask you for the credentials. They tell you, yes, you're allowed to have this medal, you're allowed to have this one, you're allowed to have this. But you can go to the Army-Navy store and buy all the medals you want. You can buy yourself a Purple Heart. You can buy yourself probably a Congressional Medal of Honor. So I don't know, probably not, but certainly you can get a couple stars, maybe you know a Bronze Star. You can buy all the medals you want to at the Navy store. You didn't earn them. But see, when we are willing to suffer through this life because of living out this righteousness that God has given, then we will be rewarded. And so reward will come. And that's what this passage is about. If in light of the fact, if indeed you are, if in view of the, of the, the principle that you are suffering with him, you will receive glory with him. And so the word provided there kind of takes away 
from it's like, yeah, but you're not gonna get you're not gonna get any kind of reward. Your inheritance is gonna go to somebody else if you don't suffer with Jesus. That is not what it's saying. It's what the world does to us because we're living like his heirs. Because I'm living out the life that he's given me. And this suffering is not to, listen, top of your page, the suffering is not to obtain our inheritance. It's not in order to obtain it. It's because we have received this status as joint heir with him. And I'm just living it. I decided to live as a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I decided to live as a true son of God. And it's not to get the reward. I'm going to get the reward because I am living this way. So I'm not trying to obtain it. I already have the inheritance. The question is, am I living it? Which goes back to what we were talking about in the cover early lessons. Are we living by the spirit that's on the inside of us? He's there, but are you living him? Are you following? Are you listening to him? So I put a number of passages down here. We're just going to kind of skim through these. We're going to read through most of them. John chapter 15, verse 18 through 21. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. That's why James said, if you seek the love of the world, you're at enmity with God. Now the word love there, James chapter 4, the one who's in love with the world, the word there means love for what it gains you. Did Jesus love the world? Yes, agape love. He gave himself for the world. But the Greek word that James uses, the love of the world, is enmity with God. That word is phileo, which means to get something that brings satisfaction to you. If you're loving the world for what it gives you, you're on the wrong side. Paul said a young man named Demas. He said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this world better using the same word phileo. He liked what the world was offering him. If the world loves you, you know, it's because you're one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You know, this is, this is so relevant in our society. There was, you know, Back numbers of years ago, you could talk about this and people say, well, yeah, maybe some parts of the world, they really, you know, Christians are really, you know, being ridiculed or whatever, or persecuted. Uh, it's not so much out of the news now, is it? Verse 20, remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Can I rephrase that in the words of Romans 8, the heir, the joint heir, right? The joint heir is no different 
than the heir. All right? So if you're a joint heir with Christ, then you're joined to this. Service is not greater than the master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know him who sent me. So what appears to be a condition providing that you suffer with him is really not as a condition um, saying that we have to do this in order to get it. It's saying if we're living this way, it will come. This will be the result. It's just a statement of fact. So if we are going to live as an heir, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to suffer, and we will receive glory just like when he suffered, he received glory. Now, this is not redemptive suffering. What Jesus did in his redemptive suffering for us, we can't do. I can't go to the cross for anybody. My bloodshed won't save anybody. I can't you know, pay for someone else's sin with my life. I can't do that. So redemptive suffering is not included in this. Neither was it in Jesus. Jesus wasn't talking about his redemptive suffering. He's talking about his suffering in society, suffering at the hands and mouths of men for living out the life of the Father. So we share in the consequences of our life that is in opposition with the world's ways. Acts 14 says... Paul, after he had gone through all of Galatia, he turned around and went back the same way. Acts 14, 22 says, as he went and visited all the churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, this is Paul's words, that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, they're already saved. So this entering the kingdom of God has to do with living out this Christian life until the kingdom comes. And there will be what? Tribulations. The word tribulation in the Greek is pressures. Pressures, crushing weight. It's the Greek word. It's that big stone that's got the knobs on it that they roll down the hill to crush the opposing army. The weight. And the world is going to push that on us. And through tribulation... We will inherit, we will come to enter the kingdom of God. Philippians chapter 3 verse 10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Not suffering on the cross, I can't share that. But I must suffer these things. Peter didn't redeem anyone on the cross. Huh? I Peter? don't mean redemption. So, may share his sufferings. Paul, Paul's going to be persecuted. He was going to be put to death. Many believers have been put to death, martyred, but they didn't redeem anyone. Now, you may suffer to tell people so that they can come to salvation. And many believers have suffered to tell. Missionaries have gone into places and even to this day are suffering to tell people but you won't suffer to save them. Only Jesus did that. 
First Peter chapter 4, verse 13 says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 2 Corinthians 1.5 says, For we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So if we're going to be suffering, if we're going to face suffering, we're also going to face the word comfort is the same Greek word encouragement. So the same God who encourages us in our trial when we suffer persecution will encourage us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Saying, man, can we change subjects? Sometimes we forget how many things the Bible really tells us. We pick out our own special little doctrines and teach those things, and we ignore entire sections of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. The glory of God is inside your jar of clay. That's what you are. You're a jar of clay. But you have a treasure inside of you. And it's in jars of clay. And it's in jars of clay. God didn't change your, your jar of clay into, you know, titanium, whatever, that can't be crushed. This treasure in your jars of clay is to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to you. The reason I can be hurt it's because the power belongs to God and not to me. I'm not immune to pain. Not the pain of ridicule or persecution. It hurts. Rejection. Being despised. Sometimes, some believers, physically tortured. We're not immune to that. I'm not some strengthened so that, ah, it never hurt me, sticks and stones and break my bones. Blah, 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 blah. It, it does hurt. It hurts. When your family rejects you, when people don't want you. When a young Muslim person receives Christ and their family writes them off and might even put them to death. So it is that there is suffering. And it's inside this jar of clay so that the power belongs to who? God, not you. It's not I'm so strong, look at what I can do. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. I have, a, I have a body that is subject to the hurt that this world can throw at it. But that's the same as the body of Jesus. This body is not immune. And we who live always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You know, most of us will probably never come to that kind of position where it's actually costing us life, or our jobs, our family, but some will. And so as members of this same family, we share these same trials that Jesus shared. He said, if it's going to happen to me, 
What? It's going to happen to you? And so these are the conditions that come because we are manifesting that we are joint heirs. Look at the bottom of your page too. Matthew chapter 10. It's the, it's the Father's business that they're actually ridiculing, not you. It's the Father's kingdom. It's the Father's words. It's, it's what the Father has set us in this world to be about. We have been, we have placed into management of the Father's business. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24 says, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a servant above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, did they not call Jesus as being of Satan? How much more will they malign those of the household? That's us. So if people call you evil and ridicule you and say you're of the devil or you're this or you're that, so it is. Because that's what they did to Jesus. Okay, let's move on to verse 18. You say, thank God we can move on to something else. <laughs> oh, please, it doesn't get any better. Verse 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy comparing with the glory that is to revealed to us. The suffering of this present time. Don't interpret that as sickness and disease. That's not what he's talking about it's not the subject god's not called us to suffer sickness and disease he's not called us to suffer poverty except as it might be because you are following the purpose and plan of god for your life in other words you're sent to a place where that is going to be how you're going to live those who gave their lives witnessing to lepers most of them died of leprosy. And those who are willing to go to places where you may be put to death for the confession of Jesus Christ are willing to pay that price. That's, that's a cost. And the poverty that they might share because of the place where God has sent them and their willingness to be there is... Not because God set the poverty upon them. He sent them to a place. Is that making sense to you? It's, it's about what they're doing. And so don't read into this that these are things that we all have to do. The Passion Translation says it this way. I'm convinced that any suffering we endure is less than nothing compared to the magnitude of glory that is about to be unveil, unveiled within us. The first word used in here is the word consider or reckon. It's the same word that Paul's used over and over, especially in the first two, three uh, chapters of, of Romans, to consider, to write it down, logizomai, to reckon, to make a record of this, add it up, and this is the total. Consider. Add up all the things. Add up all the points of suffering and pressure and this and that. And here's your total. It's not worthy to be compared. No matter how much it is, 
It has no comparison to what is about to be revealed to you. Amen. And what is God is going to do in revealing this to us. Actually, it's to us, not with us, within us, but I'll get to that in just a second. And the word not worthy comes from the Greek word axios, from which you get the word axle. And it means to balance two things, to balance the scales. And so all the pressure that we receive is not worthy to be compared to the glory that we're going to receive afterwards. The glory that God is going to reveal in us. Do you know when the, when the enemy puts to death people in the name of the Lord, the Bible says that the blood of the martyrs cries out to God. Their blood, yeah, they took their life, but their blood is still crying out. And it will produce. And so this work is being done. And so here's what happens. It is not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Greek word revealed, apocalypsis, from which you get the word apocalypse, the name for the book of Revelation. The apocalypse, it means the unveiling of what is hidden. The suffering that we are going through is... is Covering over the glory that is going to be revealed. The glory is hidden. The world doesn't see the glory. But it's going to be revealed to you. You'll see it. And those who have suffered for the Lord and those who have, have found themselves in places and times of great suffering have found the glory of God revealed in and through their lives. So Paul goes on and he doesn't stop these verses begin with the word for, which means this, then this, then this, then this, and they just go one right after the other. For I consider, verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Even the creation is longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And this word creation waits, uh, the word has to do with an earnest expectation. I, I, wanted, I wanted to get this idea, and I know that it's, it's like, okay, Jeff, that's just weird. You mean the rocks are waiting? Yeah. The trees? The oceans? The beasts? The fish? The birds? Insects? <laughs> the stars? All creation! expectantly awaiting. And it's a Greek word which means I know something's coming, I just don't know what it is. Isn't that beautiful? Creation has no idea what's coming. They know what they lost. Talk about that in just a second. They know what they lost, but they got no idea what's coming and what it's going to take to work it out. And they're waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. This revealing of the sons of God is a reference to the second coming. When God's glory is finally revealed and the suffering of creation comes to an end with what becomes the millennium. The millennium is a time when the earth is relieved from all of its suffering. When the trees worship God, the oceans worship God. 
when everything is right, everything has been put back into place, when all of the upheavals and all those things that existed in the seven years leading up to it, and the generations that were before that. Right now, creation's waiting. They just, they just have no idea what's coming. They're waiting. They're waiting. Is that amazing to you? It's amazing to me as I, as I was going down through and thinking about this. Well, that's, you know, you're putting a little bit too much anthropomorphism. There's, there's a big word for you. Anthropomorphism, right? So that means we're putting man-shaped things into creation, right? So, no, I'm not. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. Creation is waiting. Verse 20. For creation was subjected to futility in hope. Now, I want, I want you to see. Now, I put kind of in a, in a light blue there. I want you to read just the red words. For creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free. Are you with me? The phrase, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, is a parenthetic clause. So, creation was subjected to futility. The word futility means uh, the idea almost like a meaninglessness. So, what are, what is, what's happened to us? The earth was created glorious and beautiful. But what's happened to us? And they were subjected in hope. They knew that when the fall came and the curse began to take its effect upon the earth, I know you're saying you're putting too much anthropomorphism back into it, but I'm not. Creation said, all right, all right, we'll take it in hope that there's going to be an end. And we are waiting for that end. And creation has been waiting for that end since the fall of Adam. Since the very first crack in the earth. <laughs> the darkness descending. Volcanoes erupting. Creation itself being distorted into evil things, dangerous things. Animal life that was created to be friendly and useful and purposeful in the heart of God became twisted and convoluted into things that are evil and poisonous and deadly. God didn't want it that way. Adam decided that that would be it. And so, words in blue, right? Look at the words in blue. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Creation didn't want it, but accepted it. Why? Because they see God's sovereign rule. Creation doesn't rebel against God. Never did. They, they allowed it. Go ahead. Turn my dust into poisonous thorns and thistles. and Twist this and twist that. In hope, read the rest of the verse. They did this not willingly, but because of the one who subjected them to it. That's God's sovereign rule over creation. 
in hope. They did it in hope. Are you with me on that? Do you see that connection? So they subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free. Oh, we're waiting for that day. Don't know when it's happening. We're looking forward to it. And creation is looking more and more forward to it all the time. Is there any wonder why the Bible helps us to see that as we get closer and closer to the approach of the coming of the Lord, there's more and more upheaval in the earth. There's more and more of the, quote, groanings of the earth. There's more distortion and more things happening. Why? Because earth is saying it's getting close. It's getting close. And so they were subjected in hope. Notice what the rest of it said. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We are waiting to get to the place where we get to proclaim the glory of God. Amen. And when will that be? The millennium. Because in the new heaven and new earth, that's all done away with. It's a whole new heaven and new earth. Right? So the present creation... And in this revelation came to me. I don't I, I not necessarily read it any place. It just came to me as I was studying through there. During the time of the tribulation, all the upheavals and all of the earthquakes and the, this thing and that thing and all of that that's happening, you know what? That's earth being purged of all of the affection of sin, corruption, disease, infection, all of that that's been projected upon the creation so that when it gets to the millennium, they will be pure and clean and whole and fully arrayed, correct, right, perfect, so that the earth, all creation, will be perfected for the millennium. But then God will do away with all the creation and create a new heaven and new earth, but that's a whole other subject. But the millennial earth is the same earth we're living on right now. Just purged of all its evil by all of that. How many of you know when you're sick, sometimes the fever, the affection is there to do what? To burn the sickness out, right? And so your body gets rid of all of that. And so that is coming. And it's going to be set free. Verse 22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth birth until now. It's just groaning and groaning, but as the closer it gets, the more severe the birth pains become. So that the earth is going through this transition. Look at verse 23, bottom of your page. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. Because we're still living here. And my body is still subject to this creation. My spirit is not. My soul's in the process of being renewed and restored to the thinking and the purposes and the plans of God. But my body is still subject to this creation. And so we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit... As we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, we do what? We groan inwardly. 
there is something on the inside of us. Now, the idea of this groaning, whether it's earth or whether it's here and later on in, um, in verse 26, which we'll talk about after our holiday break, this groaning is not, it's not words. It's this silent turmoil of, of oppression, reaction to oppression with a cry for deliverance. And that's the groaning, and that's, it's used that way in other passages in Scripture. Um, this, this, it's, it's this inward feeling that is crying out, that says, I'm, I'm waiting for something. I need something. And maybe in times of your frustration, you felt that. It's not even words that you can express. It's just down in here. Sometimes it's against the evil that you see. Sometimes it's against the evil that you're feeling. The oppression, maybe the attitudes of things that are done. I don't know how to make it right. But I know that somehow God's going to make it right. Amen. And so that's where creation is. And that's where we ourselves are. As we're waiting for this deliverance, something to come. And he goes on and says, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. What that takes us back to is Ephesians chapter 1, where it tells us that the Spirit of God is, is like a, a, a down payment. That you have the Spirit of God inside of you, that's the down payment that is going to be redeemed. He's going to come back and seize it for himself. You're stamped for heaven. You belong to him. It's just you still live in this body. And so as long as you're in this body, there is a subjection to creation. We live in a fallen world. And the fallen world is not really our problem. Mankind is our problem. And who's behind mankind's evil? The devil himself. And so he uses mankind against the believers. And so the source of all of this suffering is not something from God. There's nowhere in here it says that God sent this. God subjected the creation to the fall, but it was Adam's choice for the fall, not God's. And so man kind brought this in and by a man it will be transformed and that man is jesus christ and so we have the first fruits of the spirit that's the down payment the spirit of god is is in there and we wait for the adoption of sons now this is we're already heirs with christ so what is this adoption this is not the adoption of placing this is the adoption of the revelation of who we really are. This is the resurrection body. He says that right within the concept. We wait for the adoption of sons. That is the redemption of our bodies. Now, you are already an heir of God. You've already been adopted. You've been placed in that position, a son of God. But there is still something more to come, and that is the redemption of your body. Because it's not enough that God has 
spirit, that's good. But God didn't save us so that our spirits could go to heaven. He saved us so that we could be there in glorified bodies. And so read uh, 1 Corinthians. I don't have time to be there. I wasn't going to, but read it yourself. 1 Corinthians, it's there in your notes. Chapter 15, verse 35 to 55. Read it. Read it in a readable Bible. All right? 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 55, where he goes through the whole principle of why God is going to give us a resurrection body so that we can live before him in the body that God created. God didn't create man just to be a spirit. He put a spirit in a body. But man fell. Now the spirit has been made alive, but there is coming a day when the body will be made alive. And so, what does he say at the end of this passage? And we wait in hope. We are saved in hope. No, I'm saved in fact. No, you're also saved in hope. That is the hope of your body being fully transformed into his glorious presence. And I love the last phrase, and so we wait with what? Patience. We wait with patience. And this is a little bit different word than the word used before. We'll wait. And this is a word of expectant waiting. In a sense, on tiptoe. I am waiting. I am so excited. I know it's going to come. I know it's going to come. It's going to be here any minute. But until it comes, I'm going to stay under the weight. I'm living under pressure right now. Hupomone. I'm living under pressure. We wait with patience. The word patience means under the weight. I'm under the weight. But I am on tiptoes. I'm not just sitting here. I'm not giving up. I'm not sat down, closed my eyes, put my head between my knees. No, I'm, I'm waiting on tiptoes. He's coming. He's coming. I'm going to stay here till he comes, but he's coming. He's coming. I know it's going to come. I feel it's going to come. I know it could happen. Paul said it could happen in my lifetime. It can happen in your lifetime. It's going to come. I know it is. I know it is. I feel that it is. People have been saying that for centuries. I know. They didn't see it, but I'm going to. But until that time, what? I'm going to stay under the weight. All right. But he's coming. You can ridicule me. Condemn me, curse me, do whatever you want to do. I'm waiting. Because he's coming. And you need to change. So, there it is. Father, we thank you for your word tonight.